This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. So um, I just wanted to say that it, it was at September of last year when three women, myself, uh, Chris Ewert, and Sarah Blythe, who's a, a former Parks Commissioner, um, decided that we couldn't uh, uh, stand by any longer where people were dying right around us and running to overdoses. So we formed, uh, we put up a tent and table in an alley. And uh, of course it was a violation of the law. And um, uh, we uh, just thought, well, you could arrest us or... We weren't sure what to do, but we felt we had no other option than to proceed. And the, the question that, of course, comes back to, I think, all I hope comes back to all Canadians, is why do volunteers break the law um, to, to do this kind of work? And, you know, there's a long history of it, um, certainly with uh, the struggle for women's reproductive rights, the struggle for women to get the vote, and I'm sure there's many other struggles. Um, my surprise was how much uh, medical interventions have been done with civil disobedience initially. That's um, often smoothed over. Um, so um, there's the picture of the tent. Evidently, this is the first day we opened, according to Travis Lupic, who came and took the picture. Um, and I wanted to sort of ground the discussion of the downtown east side um, and uh, with a, this statement, that the police tolerance, is police tolerance in Vancouver a myth? Um, we have higher police activity and more arrests than ever in the downtown east side. Um, they're undercover buy and bust cause. Uh, so if a police officer comes up to you and says, could you sell me two rock or could you, hey, can you sell me some rock? And they're all undercover. And with Hollywood North, they have makeup. You know, there's quite an effort put into this. And then they'll arrest someone who has only um, two rock or f these are crack cocaine um, doses. And for each one of those kinds of arrests, the average number of court appearances is 18. So many of them are much higher than 18 court appearances. So the next time you hear about them having to let go somebody who's committed a serious crime because their courts are filled up, please picture what I'm telling you, um, that they're, they're being, um, it's kind of a predator-prey situation. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll get into more of that. Um, so the other problem is once you're engaged in the court system, you can be red zoned away from the place you live or away from a place that you can inject drugs safely or away from a place um, that uh, supplies you with food or, or a harm reduction devices so you don't catch disease. Um, and we have not been able to intervene. So this probably means that we need to get at the provincial judges who are, are creating these conditions of release. I don't know if people are following me. It's a complicated situation. People are picked up, they're held, uh, they're released on their own recognizance to the point where if they keep not showing up for court, they'll eventually put them in, in pretrial and remand, and they sit in a maximum security cell either in Surrey or in North Fraser, and then they see the judge, and he gives them the time they've already served waiting to see the judge. Is everyone following this? Violates every fundamental principle of justice. Um, the police, in a sense, are in engaging in this because just by the look of someone, you can see whether they're going to make their court dates or not. Um, if they're living in an alley with no welfare, no health care, looking pretty bedraggled and obviously addicted to drugs, 
kids. Um, these are the kind of folks that will end up in this, and I go into that more. So pre-trial jail time is common for procedural crimes, failing to appear, going into a red zone you've been told not to go into, um, bail and release conditions. I don't know if there's any lawyers amongst you, but you may know what I'm talking about. So non-addicted drug dealers are not arrested, in my observation, uh, because this what we've done is we've created a kind of low-hanging fruit situation and we're, um, it would be great to disengage police from getting more overtime hours for doing what would be considered not as good a police work. So if a police officer knows that he's going to get um, overtime hours for each and every one of the 18 court appearances, um, it can be a kind of uh, invisible incentive to continuing to arrest people that many Canadians might agree are ill and shouldn't be arrested in the first place. So um, anyway, um, so non-addicted dealers are not arrested and bylaw tickets, um, we've done campaigns and I'll go into that a little bit. Um, a bylaw ticket, spitting on the sidewalk, urinating in an alley, um, jaywalking, uh, uh, if you put your stuff down on the street to sell it, they'll say you're blocking pedestrian traffic or display merchandise on sidewalks. These are all sort of poor laws that the police can enforce. It takes a long time to get a warrant for your arrest for a ticket, but you will get one eventually. If they subpoena you to court after about a year and a half, you don't show up at court, you don't dispute that ticket, you don't pay that ticket, they will um, issue a bench warrant. And again, it's 18 court appearances. Um, so it's the same as... Um, so. The other thing is that the, this is from a few years back, and I know you can't read the thing, but the red part is um, Vancouver bylaw tickets. So in the whole of Vancouver, all bylaw tickets, 90% are in the downtown east side, and of those, most of them are on one block. So the police were saying, we were trying to file a complaint, Pivot helped out with it, to say that you can't discriminate against a neighborhood and a group of people that tend to be jaywalking in that neighborhood. We actually did some surveys, we got a little um, I don't know if anyone's driven up Hastings Street, but there's a 30-kilometer zone. The drug user group was able to get that put in place because we did a pedestrian safety group. Because if you go after the police on this kind of thing, they'll say, well, the tickets stop people from jaywalking, and there's a lot of pedestrian deaths in our neighborhood, and there really was. We looked at the data. It was very difficult. So we said we'll do a pedestrian safety thing because there's no evidence to show that giving people tickets that they can't pay that end up putting them and criminalizing them is going to cause them to not jaywalk. They jaywalk for other reasons. So anyway, um, we've got the, we figured it wasn't really the jaywalking. We went to a number of locations in the, just in case you ever wondered where the most jaywalkers in Vancouver are, it's on Burrard Street as they run across from uh, buses that come uh, in from the North Shore and they run across Burrard Street to go down in the hole to get into the um, subway or what do we call it? The, Skytrain, yeah. Yeah, so that's, and the Van Du members are sort of bedraggled with their clipboards watching people. So we did a very sort of scientific little study to sort of push back a little bit to try to make sure we were exploiting all the myths about um, the criminal jaywalkers, the repeat offenders in our neighborhood. So, um, this is the phenomena I was trying to describe about people that are very, very marginalized. Um, I'm not sure how many people this would be, but it's certainly uh, over a thousand people. Um, um, they go to jail for three to six months at a time, and um, they're rearrested for failing to comply with community conditions. So, 
it, it, this is in, clearly a problem. If you're released uh, from jail for f not paying a whole bunch of other fines and not showing up at all these court appointments, which are criminal offenses, if you do not do what a judge tells you, you're in trouble. And Or community conditions, you've gone into an area you've been told not to go into. Um, you end up with quite a robust, large number of charges. There's three charges per time you miss your court appointment or violate your community conditions. and. Um, so people are repeatedly picked up, and then um, the joke around, I don't know, Dean Wilson coined the phrase, he says they're doing life in jail in three-month pieces. And there's a fellow who's actually suing the system right now, and from the time he was 17 till 27, he had only ever spent, the longest period of time he'd ever been out of jail was six weeks. And he, you lose track of what he's ever done originally, but now he's a seriously mentally ill, he's held in um, segregation, uh, solitary confinement, which is another whole issue, I'm sure um, that's coming to the fore. We're having a court case right now. Um, and when he's released, he's released with no welfare, um, no health care and no meds. So, and it's Canada. I know this is shocking, but I, I should hand out Kleenexes at these things because it, it really, well, I had the same reaction. So if, it, if it's hard to grasp, I understand why. So this is, um, the diagram was made by um, Jane Buxton, who's a, an epidemiologist with the BC Centre for Disease Control. So they're seeing it and they talk about it, but I'm not seeing really any intersectionality where the health department starts to go to the cops what do you think you're doing, or to the courts, and starts to really pressure for a, a diversion-type project. Um, they have one in Seattle. Anyway, when they're discharged from prison, they receive no welfare, no housing, no medical coverage. If you're not on welfare in British Columbia, because we have an MSP payment system, which, by the way, is run by Maximus, some billionaire U.S. company, um, with a subcontract of $4.2 billion. You can go look it up at the Auditor General's page. Anyway, the... Um, other provinces may not have as much trouble as we do, but if your welfare isn't, if you're not on welfare that day, and a welfare has a system of kicking people off welfare continuously. So if you don't get the signatures you needed to get by the certain date, they tell you your file is closed, there's a three-week week wait to reopen it. So for one month, you have no money at all. And, you're, and I said, I questioned them a little bit, where are you supposed to live? They said shelters, which of course are turning people away. So we've got a really difficult situation. So this diagram is very real. Um, and when they, she calls it involvement in street crime, that means that you're just basically picked on by the police. And in our neighborhood, we have many, many police. There's 400 um, additional police that have been added. So at any given time, there's 400 police in the downtown east side. So it's a bit difficult. So this is... Um, so over 70% of the arrests in the downtown east side are for warrants or failing to comply to a community condition. So they, they're, they're um, you know what I mean? I don't know how to get to you, but they've, they've not shown up somewhere when they were supposed to. And the police uh, will run their name and see that they have a warrant. And that's a serious, they really do get picked up and recharged with additional charges and often are then held. And that's a typical arrest. It's kind of old. You can tell by the old police car. They have new ones now. So the... Um, some of the civil rights issues that have been built upon to do the overdose prevention site, it didn't just come out of the blue, was that um, VANDU, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, which has many other drug user groups. They have a Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society, which is all people who are Aboriginal descent, who are active drug users, who can join a support group for people. And those, they have weekly meetings, and uh, they're getting some independent funding and some research researchers are working with them. But the... Um, the, usually, if you hear about a big crackdown, they'll call it that they're sweeping dealers. But for the most part, they're arresting people who, um, 
you know, when I said people don't have any welfare, well, the job that they can get is to be an enforcer for a street dealer, uh, which means collecting debts, or even just to deal for a street dealer. And when you deal for a street dealer, you don't own those drugs and you don't own those profits. So for the most part, you'll sell the drugs and have to hand the money into the fellow who fronted you those drugs. And then you get paid in drugs and maybe a little bit of money so you can get some food. But there's enough free food down there, so I don't even know. But it's difficult information even for me to get because people who are dealing are very protective of, they, they don't want to get, um, beaten up because Ann Livingston went and told somebody who they worked for or something, you know. So the, the, the uh, drug dealing is extremely profitable and very well organized. So my estimate is um, just with crack cocaine, which isn't, may not be the most predominant drug in the downtown east side, it's $150,000 a day is actually paid for crack cocaine every day. And if you think about welfare day, you're talking about $500,000. So no one's ever really cracked this open about who's dealing and whether you could really enforce your way out of this kind of health crisis we're having. I don't think you can. I think we should divert and go to a legalized regulated market and anyone who's addicted should be prescribed these drugs by their doctor for f and basically covered by Medicare so that this market will just wither and die to some extent because it's not as good at drugs for one thing. Um, anyway, the um, we protested these these tickets I was telling you about back in 2008-2009, um, December of 2008, and what we thought they were doing, because they handed out so many tickets all in two months, they were very proud of it, um, that they were waiting for the Olympics, and at about 18 months they could pick everyone up on these warrants for these unpaid tickets and sort of clear out the downtown east side for the tourists during the Olympic Games. That, that was just my, you know, no one admitted to this, but anyway, so um, the uh, downtown east side street market was funded to ensure that people had a place to van. So we made a list of demands, and one was, if, if you're going to give people tickets for peeing in an alley, there should be a public toilet. If you're going to give, you know, or, or don't give out the tickets, if you're going to give people tickets for vending on the street, which is, you know, putting your goods down, and they'll call it blocking pedestrian traffic, um, you can't give those tickets out unless you make an, a venue for people to sell a few things. So we were able, through sort of social protest and persistence, to get funding for a downtown east side street market. And um, so we've put on markets for over five years before getting funding permits and a space. And it was real persistent civil disobedience. You have meetings with the city and they go, you don't have a permit. And then you learn to always smile at these meetings. I'm sure you'd be happy to give us a permit. And the main thing we're doing is a sort of middle class person um, well, sort of middle class. In my background, I'm poor as dirt, but the, um, you know what I mean. I've got that sensibility of, of um, I, I'll dispute the tickets, you know, or I'll witness for other people. You know, this sort of standing with people. That was a very powerful thing. And I just, anyone who's got any privilege at all, I'm just saying, it, it still surprises me even how much um, difference it can make for a group of very marginalized people, many Aboriginal people, many people growing up with real chaotic lives, and they have a real knack for vending. Um, we had, um, I organized drug users first, and then, this is of course many years later, we're walking up to people who are sitting on the street selling stuff, and I say, do you have any tickets? Um, we're helping, we, we got tickets resolved, like thrown out of court. That's a thing, I'll tell you. Little drug user group, we think big victory. And I'd walk up to them and they'd just tell me to F off. And I think, whoa, these guys are harder to organize. They're, they're real outliers. They're very independent. They often sleep outside. They collect bottles and stuff and they get stuff from bins and they sell on the street. And they sure as heck didn't know who I was, some weird 
do-gooder ladies asking them about tickets. And, and um, so we, it was a very, uh, it was another whole kind of chapter in my life as, a, as an organizer of people to get this downtown Eastside Market. It's thriving. Um, we have at least one employee. We have a couple of locations. Um, it's still always underfunded. And we're always scraping along. But there's a certain kind of charm to the, um, the feisty, uh, you know, um, vendors and and we and involve a lot of volunteers and pay them small stipends so they are supplementing their welfare income because it's below minimum wage it would be considered a meal allowance of what what, what they're getting so there is the market um the um the the building that building that's the pigeon park savings this is called 62 east hastings and we have a market there five days a week anyone can come down there and sell <laughs> or whatever and and um uh, at the very back of that is where we have the overdose prevention tents. So I'll get to that. But I wanted to put it in a context. It wasn't like we just showed up somewhere and put up tents, although I'm tempted to do that in Surrey and in Abbotsford as well. So as the public um, drug use increased, um, there was a big argument in our market because um, we'd be at the market and someone would come over and go, there's a guy injecting and the other people and I... I banned him for life. I told him he's banned. I said, I don't know if we can do that. But, you know, I was always for trying to make uh, a little place, just set it aside and say, look, if you're going to use drugs here, don't do it in front of the people sitting next to you. They get very upset and they come and complain and they try and get us to kick you out. But we could never win that one. It was a very democratic little organization. And um, anyway, these... um, uh, overdose kits uh, are there's a tremendous number of them that have been giving out it's called take home naloxone this drug is also called narcan you'll hear it called that anyway we've we're swimming in overdoses and um, we were using these little kits and if you see you have to break off that glass end um, un get one of these syringes in there pull up the stuff you know it, it it's one of these Things where your hands are, sh- you know what I mean? So you, you see us now, we've got preloaded syringe in our back pocket. We're in an actual site where we're inviting people to be because it is incredibly stressful. Although there's these, these kits are terrific. People should have them if you know anyone on opiates or if you're just someone who's around and think you might um, see these overdoses. You can see I got the numbers in here. So this is the, um, this is the up. So this is how many uh, sites enrolled, and this is the sites enrolled now. You can see they really ramped this up. And it, And it's shocking, in a sense, that they haven't impacted more. But you just have to realize the overdoses would be even higher than they are if we hadn't have done this. And so they're giving out 22,000 kits, uh, and compared to the year before with 3,000. So when they had a public health emergency, they did do something, and this is one of the things they did. So um, anyway, the the administration rate is a little bit more subtle. Um, I'll go into that a little bit. It's kind of... So when the son of one of our members of our street market crew, who's a very central volunteer, Aboriginal woman, um, uh, Janet Charlie, her son died at the corner, right near where we were. She ran up the street. It was too late. They couldn't... You know, they put him on life supports and sort of kept him going. And for three days, we covered her shifts while she visited in the hospital. But he passed away. And it really changed her approach and the entire market's approach. So um, she was one of the people really opposed that we were never going to make a tent for those people to use those drugs and she she conceded that um, um, we should move forward with it and these are I don't know if you've ever seen these I find these fascinating these these memorials that get put up along our street anyway they're works of art and this one's deteriorating it's quite a few days old by the time I saw it and I didn't realize it was for her son but it is that's why Charlie's at the bottom you can see CHR anyway 
that was it for us. Uh, uh, the day before welfare in September of 2016, this was before some of the huge outbreaks, uh, we said, that's it. Um, and I was very timid, but this is a really nice tent style to use because the rain and the snow can't destroy it. It's really meant for a car. They were on sale. I don't know if they're on sale every year at Canadian Tire in the fall, but that's where we got it. And um, so we knew we had to cover... To be impactful, it's 10 to 10. So we had 12 hours a day, seven days a week to suddenly cover immediately. Well, we're already experts at covering things with volunteers. We're also experts at tents and tables. So we had a lot. We could move into this. So, but it's still worth it. There, and the police showed up. They wanted to know what we were doing. Um, and that's one of the women. She's very shy. That's that's um, Chris Ewert. There's three women who did this. Chris is... Chris is the welder from Ontario. I'm the drug user organizer, and Sarah Blythe is, I don't know, the, the, Sarah Blythe knows all the politics because she used to be on the parks board. So she's been terrific at the GoFundMe page. She really knows how to get that out there. So this was the first editorial uh, to our surprise, and um, they were calling for us to be arrested. <laughs> and, uh, not that I'm against that, but um, uh, as Sarah said, does that mean we get a day off? Anyway, so these are direct quotes from the article. But the funny thing about Vancouver, you have to love Vancouver. They were they're accusing us of encouraging drug use. This is a shooting gallery. It's you know it's illegal. And then at the end they say more harm reduction sites like Vancouver Coastal's Insight and addiction treatment like Providence Healthcare's Crosstown Clinic, where they prescribe heroin. So they're asking for something much more radical than what we're doing in the alley while they're calling for us to be arrested. I thought, wow, only Vancouver. Um, so I was kind of pleased about it. And um, the other, uh, where do they have it? Yeah, I'd like, this is where the, you watch our, these Vancouver Coastal, it's not legal, doesn't support or condone it. If you want to feel really abandoned, these are the moments. And, of course, now Vancouver Coastal funds us. Once, and I'll show you the little polit politics that unfolded. So it's, uh, it's, it's a little embittering. And then uh, the city of Vancouver. Now, the city of Vancouver was the one who let us stay in that spot. That's a leased lot at 62. The, the lease is in the name of the city. The lot is owned by BC Housing. BC Housing seems very conservative. I don't think they would have been nice to us. But obviously someone was protecting us because Sarah and Chris and I had this bitter argument. I said, let's put it in the alley. They said, no, we'll put it on the lot. And I said, let's put it in the alley. I said, no, let's put it on the lot. Because I thought the city would come and make us take it down or tell us we could never have another dime from them and that they were cutting everything off to the street market, which of course would have got a lot of people marching in streets. But I'm just saying, I didn't want to have the fight about it. I just wanted to keep going. And uh, they won the argument, so I had to think Sarah had knew some more politics about the city than I did because she was, used to be a Vision Vancouver um, Parks Board, so I've, I, I concede to her that way. So these are the overdose deaths, and I just wanted to show you that these were the bad old days. Now, I, this is when Vandu was formed, and Vandu formed in response to these very high rates. These are not numbers, they're rates. And as the population of Vancouver has increased, of course, we're getting much higher numbers, but the rate per 100,000 is what you're looking at here. So the rate per 100,000 in 93 was very high. It was very high again in 98. And we only surpassed it in 2015. But we knew these rates were going up. We, it was terrible downtown. You'd hear, you know, and I'm, of course I know because I'm always being told about how many people have died. And uh, so then this is the super epidemic. There's... 90, 98, there's 93, there's 2015, and there's 2016, and this is so far the rate per 
in 2017. So this thing is ballooning. This is a real crisis that we're facing in British Columbia. There are thousands of orphans being created. There are, like it's, it's and, and it's not, um, people would say, uh, one would hope that we have a, a better health, public health system that would respond more quickly to emergencies. And let's just hope this is because drug users are so hated. If our whole healthcare system's this miserable, I'm a little nervous. So um, <clears throat> anyway, that, that was the, the interesting thing was, is we set up in September and then the rates went haywire in, uh, they went f up 400% in November. So we had already had our little practice run in. Uh, we were getting familiar with a lot of the drug users who were starting to come to our site. The unique thing about our site is it isn't just injection. It's people smoke rock there because it's an outdoor area. I keep saying it has a unique ventilation system. But um, it was a tough, tough winter, very, very cold. Uh, we had one string of electricity coming uh, from uh, uh, the bank next door. And this is the quote... Um, from November 16th. Um, we cannot sit around and have this happen on our watch. We don't have to wait for red tape or the government or bureaucracy. We knew that no one could stop us because we were doing the right thing, much to my... So, um, so these are the little bit of analysis of who is dying. Are they in the downtown east side? Um, and it, the, the, if you look at the rates provincially, it's evenly spread through the whole province. It's also evenly spread a little bit in the age groups, which is, means it's more than one problem that we're dealing with. So, oops. What did I do here? Um, these are the ages, 19 to 29, 30 to 39, 40. And you'll see that they're, like there's less 19 to 29. And 103, this would be the real bulk of the overdoses if you would say these are significantly different. They're high in all of them. Oh, that's 2017 so far this year. Last year, we had a slightly higher rate between 30 to 39. But look how even that is, 200 and change on all of them, even 50 to 59-year-olds. And what we're dealing with, I think, is that it's not just people who live in alleys deprived of welfare, criminalized in the downtown east side. They have high rates, but they're also being saved at a high rate because there's a huge amount of Narcan being, extremity, uh, um, being um, injected into people who revived, you know, and, and repeat overdoses. But there's a whole other population of people who either relapse after they've um, stopped using drugs and then they get this drug with the fentanyl in it and they, the main problem is that they're doing these drugs alone. And um, the shame of a relapse, you, you're, you're straight, you phone everyone you know, your mom knows, your grandma knows, I'm straight, I'm abstinent. And then when you go to have your sneaky little, um, um, which is very common. Has anyone here ever quit smoking? Honestly, you might have a cigarette sometime, but you don't go, that's it, now I'm a smoker again. You just stay on track, I'm being a non-smoker. And I think that's true with a lot of addiction. So if they do that kind of behavior, it's fatal now. So even, or they're being denied pain medications, they go to their doctor, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, to, their, to our horror, has now made very, very stringent guidelines for um, um, prescribing opiates, but they don't grandfather the people in that they are already addicted. It could be a good program not to put every kid with a rotator cuff injury from throwing a football at 15 on opiates. Let's not do that. And they did do that for a long time. Um, so I, could, I support the change, but I think they need to be more responsible and help with this epidemic. And I don't have any further analysis about, I know this much, this is the 80% dead are men. This is very significant. And 20% women. 
I was just in Ohio doing one of these talks, and there, there it's 70% men, 30% women. I was at a recent talk, though, and a woman got up and said, you know why it's lower amongst women? Because they're murdered at a higher rate. I was just, like, horrified. I was, and, but she's talking about the Missing Women's Commission of Inquiry, that kind of understanding and looking at violence against women. Um, and if you put the two together, it was certainly thoughtful for me. I thought, wait a minute, someone should look at that. I don't dismiss what she had to say. She was uh, very articulate. So um, there's some of the stuff I'd already said. So the, this is the other part where you're talking about people dying, and I can't get any further analysis of this. For some reason, the people in the coroner's office don't understand how smart drug users are. So as soon as I can get more information, I go around to all the drug users and go, explain this. What's going on? What's going on? Because they can see into things we don't understand because they're kind of like whales, you know? They surface, they blow off some stuff, we look at them and go, oh, there's a drug user. And then they disappear for five hours and we have no idea what they're doing for five hours. But if you ask them, they may well tell you. So um, when they say private residence, uh, that would include the Balmoral. So I, they used to go, people are dying in their homes. I don't, I don't want to stretch the word home here, but so... Um, but it would be good to have a really, really robust analysis on this. We do know that BC Housing is now being very, very cautious in their buildings. The Portland Hotel Society, um, I guess illegally, every single person entering their buildings, they say, are you using drugs right now? Have you got drugs on you? You're going to shoot them up? Please do it right here. And they set up a space in each one of their buildings. And they've got some of the lower overdoses. But when people have that kind of shame, or if the building you're in has made it very clear to you that we don't welcome drug users in this building, you're not likely to say, oh, I don't want to die in my room. So the people being found dead in their rooms is very, very high. And um, as you can see here, that, um, so the outside... Um, so 85% of fatal overdoses are in residences or other residents. So I think when they say other residences, other inside, I think, is a bathroom at McDonald's or, you know, and there's plenty of those. But other residents, I'm not sure if they mean um, w what they're talking about. So this is just a curiosity thing. I just wanted to make clear. Um, Non-fatal overdoses are, over, are outside. So the safest place to use drugs is in an alley in the downtown east side. Who knew? So... Um, yeah, and that's, and that's an odd thing because it's certainly not for everyone, certainly any self-dignified drug user. Although I had people coming to our site and they have kind of a nice leather jacket on and, I, and I'm like, oh. And the guy looks at me and I said, oh, um, are you used like something? You get to say something. You're asking them which drug you do. We just keep a very, very basic data, male, female. Are you using up or down? And are they smoking or injecting? And um, so he told me and then he said, you know, I'm just terrified. These drugs are so awful. I'm not using alone. But you'd never know that guy. You know what I mean? This is, this is the, all the people that pass. We don't think of them as drug users because why would we? It's none of our beeswax. Most of the time you can't tell if someone's using drugs. They actually have to analyze their pee. So we've gone really haywire on these certain kinds of drugs that people can't use that are criminalized and these other kind of drugs that no one seems to give a damn. And um, it's really none of anyone's business whether I take a, a daily, I don't know, Valium or well, I don't know, whatever people take, antidepressants. You know, it's really, and we've got this, we've got to really um, make a bit huge cultural shift in order to stop this kind of awful epidemic we've got. So the, um, this is the picture, Terry Lakes there, the Minister of Health. And 
oddly, with you know everything I could say about this government that I didn't enjoy, he was very uh, responsive. Sarah invited him. That's Sarah. She invites him. This is uh, Mary Claire Zach, who works for the city of Vancouver. And they're having a look around in our freezing cold winter with our freezing cold tent. <laughs> and you can see the people are using in the background. That's all it really looks like. That's the volunteer Robin. But people come in. They sit down at these tents. And we have a very different model than Insight. People chat to one another. And we were trying to encourage that because we don't want them to stay in the room. This should be a pleasurable place you come to, sort of a model for a neighborhood pub. I think we finally settled on the model that it's like a swimming pool. You can have fun, but no dead bodies at the end of the day, please. So, and, you know, you have to do what the lifeguard says, you know, that kind of sense that you're just volunteers and you're trying to boss people around who can be kind of tough customers, um, depending on their background. So did I go too? No, that's him. So he said, this is a quote from Terry Lake, I'm assured that we're not contravening the federal law, which is what everyone kept saying, we can't do this because of the federal law. I'm going, we're going to watch people die because of some burn Ottawa burn, I say. I'm just like, we could form a city state or go, you know what I'm just saying. <laughs> Ottawa can be a little uh, remote and not necessarily respond to BC. Anyway, he did it through um, the Emergency Health Services Act, which I've looked up a number of times because I was trying to force them to do something. For people who don't know, that was declared in April 2016, and then almost nothing happened except giving out the Narcan kits, and that's not nothing. 22,000 Narcan kits is a thing to do, but anyway, so um, there he is, and his quote is on inspiration from um, uh, the... His inspiration was coming to our freezing cold site and seeing these bedraggled freezing volunteers and all the, you know, it's absolute mayhem down there. So it really moved him, he said. And he woke up at four in the morning and then he decided he would do this ministerial order and uh, made us legal. And we were eventually offered at least the funds to cover our volunteer stipends. So we still fundraise because we have more expenses than that to run the society or do anything else that we have. So anyway, I put this forward at a, at a meeting of uh, people who were all trying to get medical, um, these highly technical clinic um, licensing from the federal government. And I just keep saying, oh, there's a genie you'll never get back in that bottle, because I disagree with, with creating such a fuss about it when we know that we need to move on with prescription drugs. And prescription drugs need to be, um, you know, you'd have a pharmacist and you'd have security for the drugs there so they can't be robbed and you'd have the people coming in to use the drugs on site and be witnessed. This is the model that's starting to pop up in our neighborhood. Um, but it's so slow. Um, the bodies piling up in the meantime is very frustrating. So w what I liked about ours was that it empowers people, um, that, it, that, th that you can do it with no funding. You don't have that helpless feeling that we've got to get a grant to just do this you can just get started um, we had no lineups I think we do now we, we would just everyone would just move over and we had a mixture of people smoking drugs injecting drugs and um, trying to you end up creating these social networks and I don't know if anyone's ever read Chasing the Scream Johan Hari who wrote that book often says the, the opposite of addiction is social connection. So in some funny way, we're creating social connection about, uh, with a group of people who are often not viewed as capable, and we're recognizing their capacities and expertise. So we invite people to become volunteers who come and use the site. And that's not common. You know, you don't go to a clinic and they say, oh, would you like to, you know, volunteer? Well, actually, they do invite you to volunteer. But we mean, like, 
be in charge kind of volunteer. We, we give people quite a bit of responsibility. And um, so the other thing was that we had these porta potties and even Insight to this day still has no public toilet. No one can use the toilet at Insight. If you ever go to the alley just to the side, <laughs> you'll smell what happens when you don't have a public toilet. They were just so afraid that they couldn't stop people from um, using in the toilets and that they would find dead people there. But Vandu and a number of other groups have had to deal with that for many, many years. So. Anyway, hopefully it reduces despair. It attracts people using drugs who, are, who might otherwise, um, like they, they want to be involved, that it's an attractive option. So um, that's what I said. And then it's an inspiring example of um, citizen action in a public health emergency. And I, I, I kept thinking, well, I, I don't think that anymore. I kind of, I shouldn't be so bitter and cynical, but I have given up on, on I find people are very fearful or restricted one of the things about me is that I'm unemployed and I live on welfare and I have no assets. So it's one thing for me to go preaching to other people who might lose, might get a, a slap suit or a mix suit. I don't know if you've heard of these. S people who engage in uh, civil disobedience or doing social um, justice movements have been sued in the past by large corporations. And you got to lawyer up and try to protect yourself. So I know that there's a fear. But I also want to encourage people to really realize how powerful they are as nobodies. I mean, I consider myself kind of nobody, a person without a job. And people will say, that's outrageous. You should have a job. Well, I think I should have a job too. But one of the beauties of not having a job or the advantage was that no one was going to tell me to get out of that alley, my boss, and no one was going to cut the funding. You know, we didn't have any funding for the most part. We were using the GoFundMe page. So that's one of the things to keep in mind on, on um, you know, who are the citizens and how do you take citizen action? Um, it doesn't always have to be so um, extreme. I, this looks very extreme because you're preventing deaths. But honestly, I don't know what else to do when people are dying except for to take action. So um, the, um, we ensure excluded, vulnerable, marginalized people are welcomed and that they can participate as a volunteer. And I think that's really key to um, the sense of belonging for them. They're not always viewed as that miserable, um, incapable, bothersome, um, you know, person who doesn't, you know what I mean? There's a very derogatory um, um, sort of um, dialogue around people who use drugs. And I think that allowing them to be volunteers takes them from here up to community volunteers who give of their time to the community. And often when we have deaths, and I'm communicating with people's families, that's what I say when I write a letter to their family and say, tell his children that he was so loved in our neighborhood and respected and he gave back and he put in thousands of hours and had this huge, you know what I mean? Because I think that we're getting intergenerational damage as people are, are terribly ashamed of their parents or their children and you see um, a lack of discussion in an open way. Um, we need to remove the stigma from this. Um, we use non-user volunteers, um, uh, especially to get through Welfare Week. If, if everyone gets paid and they're all drug users, you don't want everyone there to be loaded on the very day when we get the most people coming in and we need the most people to be on the ball. And Karmic has been a really refreshing um, group of um, young good-looking people who are all seem to be students who are very eager to volunteer with us. And I realized that what we give to them is the experience of builds their confidence to deal with um, what do the symptoms look like. They work with um, these, uh, uh, what do you call them, festivals, um, you know, um, raves. I don't call them that anymore. You know, the big 
festivals outdoors and they do drug testing at those. They always have a medic tent. The medic tent volunteers are very keen to work in our place because they see so many complicated things there and then they feel more confident because these drugs, the fentanyl and carfentanyl and all the 48 fentanyl derivatives are ending up in ecstasy and a number of other drugs. So they need to be able to recognize it. So it's an opportunity for them. And I find it really grounds our volunteers. And you get these, you know, some posh doctors there um, giving of his time. And uh, he's hanging out with these guys that have, you know, never had to pot to piss in. They're just so poor. And you know what I mean? I like the cross-pollination. We, we're getting strengths from a number of, of um, uh, sort of population types. And I think it makes our project more, more strong. Um, Anyway, this is uh, the list of things that we're um, training people in and it, the, to keep viewing it as a very positive thing and that we're, there's a number of other reasons to do it. You, if you can get the funding and then set up another insight, and we're now seeing two or three other insights go up. One of the things about that we were quite critical of, I found out, oh, they're going to put four more seats. And I look, we've got 48 people here. <laughs> we're operating 12 hours a day. We've actually moved it. Now we're at 16 hours a day. We have one paid employee, which I think needs to be changed. It's way too much. It's a tricycle going 40 miles an hour waiting for the wheels to fall off. The, um, uh, but the other model, it's $2 million a year to run Insight. And Insight's a great, great place. But um, I think that we need to create these alternative sites because the capacity is so huge. If, uh, when we saw what they were applying um, for the uh, exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substance Act federally in order to open more legal, proper medical clinic insights, um, the, the number of seats is too small. It can't possibly touch what we're dealing with. So. It was a bit, I didn't go and yell at them, but I felt like it, you know. So anyway, this is the other problem. This is a woman being arrested. She had one rock on her. I watched them. I was so mad. <laughs> the police keep saying they don't arrest for possession. She had one rock. She was charged with possession. We don't call it Mirandizing, but they, they give this speech. You were being arrested and charged, you know, the, the little speech they give her. And I listened to the whole thing. Those are, that's an undercover cop. That's an undercover. And we come up around the corner. This is Van Du's right here. Come up around this corner. That's Dunleavy and Hastings. Uh, and you see the resources. Two big vans. Uh, two uniformed officers. Two other undercover people. For, these guys had crack cocaine, not even fentanyl. I mean, if you wanted to say, okay, we're going after everyone for fentanyl. Let's get this stuff off the street. No. It was crack cocaine, smokable cocaine. Anyway, and then when I try to, I immediately get on the phone with the chief inspector. And right now, I'm seeing them right here, officer number whatever. <laughs> and I'm yelling. I thought I could just intimidate them. Let her go. It didn't work. These, I, these officers are very young. They're way younger than, they're younger than my kids. So then this is the other one I came across. The police can just stop you in an alley, and you look like you're a dealer. And who knows? You must have a criminal record, and they, they can figure that out. I don't know if they have facial recognition or they just run your name. And the guy came in right after and they had taken all his money. And it's legal to take someone's money. And they said, well, you can come back tomorrow and you can get your money from the police station, but you have to show your ID. Well, what did they ask him just before they took all his money? Do you have any ID? And of course, he doesn't have any ID. So it's just robbery. And talk about depressing someone who's already, you know, skating on thin ice or overdosing. They have criminal records they have no hope and that's the, the problem I'll get to that later but this is just wanted to say you know as I say who knew um, anyway um, and then this was our other problem and this is Bob Rennie the condo king his place faces onto Pender over there this is the alley oh and this side is Hastings Street our d gate is right there and these people he put these lights in 
hot tip. If you want people to go away, turn all the lights off. If you put in lights like this, these, um, what are these new lights, LED? I, I go down that alley, I have to put my arm up because I find the glare, you know, on my glass. I can't see. And um, who loves this is drug dealers because they can see the lights. They can see the money. And they have problems with, like, counterfeit money being passed off on them because they want to do the deal quick. And then all these little packets of dope. So we, they've created this awful mess right outside our place. I'm going, can someone turn off the lights? But I haven't been able to get an appointment with him yet. So, um, or the, there's uh, some condos up um, above there, too. So what did I do? Uh-oh. Uh-oh, I'm going too fast. Okay. So this is one of the conflicts we're having within our thing because it is... Um, kind of exciting to be like a paramedic but you're not and they get a sense of pride because they can you know I've saved and people honestly they a hundred people if you do this for a few years and you hang around these streets you will save hundreds and hundreds of people because that's how many people are overdosing they kind of do the drug and then you see them floating along and I think to myself that's why they do the drug they want to be like that they want to be like high floating and then you see them go down slowly, slowly, slowly. And once they're bent over and their face is on their knees or something, it's not always what it looks like. Some people stiffen up and they look like a statue. Then we've really trained our people to say, don't start chatting to your neighbor or go and have a smoke outside. Like, keep an eye on anyone who's nodding that heavily. Then they just slip away. And, that, and then you realize they're, they're blue and they're not breathing. So we have learned a tremendous amount, but... Um, one of the things that's hard for people who don't use drugs and don't value being high is how much people value that. And it's, you have to really turn off your little voice. What a waste of time. God, you know, you know what I mean? I, there's, I have a lot of judgment because it's not my thing. I'm sure there's judgment people could have about my life too. But anyway, so we've had this ongoing um, sort of dispute about whether we're just there to have someone come in, do their drugs. If they overdose, we Narcan them and then like a catch and release and shove them back in the alley and they'll do it again. Or they don't, whatever. But there's a tremendous kind of, uh, like, it feels eternal. And, and I know that uh, because I go and do the research, and I've been at this a long, long time, and I know the problems with welfare now, that we need to help people get their lives back. If injecting drugs in an alley in the downtown east side of Vancouver or any city in Canada is your best option in life, I think that you might, you might want to have some more options. And that might be the conversation we want to have with them, not this, you're using drugs. If you just stop using drugs, everything will turn out. It's not true, for one thing, because they're, they're being, what we've done now is we've created all these barriers to people to calm down. Um, if you don't stop using drugs first, but get on welfare, or you don't stop using drugs, but you get a place and welfare, and then you see people put their lives together. And that's what happens amongst our volunteers. It's an extremely gradual process. Uh, anyway, um, it's, a tough, it's a tough argument because it's very um, exciting to uh, keep saving people. And then it's extremely tedious to help someone get welfare, I can tell you. So this is an interesting, um, there was a movement in the United States to get rid of um, alcohol prohibition. And I think that um, we are very smart as a society to think we've got a huge task ahead of us. It's going to take a long time and it's going to be a social justice movement or, um, and it's going to be political. But um, the understanding I had was that, uh, um, that uh, there was a woman named uh, Pauline Sabin, who was kind of a rich woman, Republican. She became a Democrat. She led a lot of this stuff to get them to um, uh, really end uh, 
alcohol prohibition in the United States, and they had to do an amendment to the Constitution, like a, a bigger task than we have at hand. But um, I think it's an important um, thing to see that there's a place for everyone. So this is um, an old picture, obviously, and I wasn't really aware of how widespread this movement became. They had 1.5 million women who belonged to the... I'm trying to figure out how I can read this. Oops, that's not how you do it. There's um, my notes. Anyway, um, within two years of forming the women's... Um, what is it called? The women's Organization to End Prohibition, something like that. Who knew? I didn't even know it existed. I saw it in Ken Burns, any documentary film people. Part three of Prohibition. I've watched that over and over again, and it's a very important lesson to how prohibition has ended because you've got so much politics. No government wants to be the one that's soft on crime and, and um, lets people, you know, enables drug users or something. So even with the NDP, we have a hard time convincing them. We've had more luck with very right-wing NPA uh, mayors, and we've had more luck with liberal um, Gordon Campbell-funded insight. And I don't know why we've had that, but it's, it's, it's still part of the struggle. I just wanted to point it out. The other part of the struggle is that drug users themselves are organized into groups so that they will never give up. I mean, they have so little to lose except their lives. Like, if you look at this picture, that guy's dead, that guy's dead. Like, you know, they're, those guys aren't dead. But, you know, I'm just saying, if you go through this and, and see just how impacted they are, and the formation of Vancouver Network of Drug Users is a very important part of it, the movement to get insight, and you will get things moving forward. It's like to say, oh, well, women are going to get the vote if, when men give them the vote. No, that's not quite how it worked. <laughs> and it's people who get all, oh, they're breaking the law. Like, are you kidding me? Do you know how many people break the law all the time to get things new? And it's not taught in schools, and it's not, there's a kind of way you're, you know, you're kicked to the curb or seen as less than or a kind of an upstart or a very radical person. I think it's very unradical to do these things because I think they need to be done and I think it's the most efficient way of moving forward. And to feel so helpless that we're not going to hold our police accountable, we're not going to hold our courts accountable, we're not going to hold the health department accountable, and we're just going to go along and just keep recording these very, very high rates of death is unacceptable. The other part is that the law enforcement, they used to be called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition and they've changed their name to Law Enforcement Action Part partnership. Uh, so there are police involved in ending this. They think that it's really degraded policing instead of, I don't know if anyone watched in the olden days when they would arrest anyone in our neighborhood, they'd come up and kind of punch them in the stomach and get them to vomit because they would hold these drugs in their mouth and they would swallow them so that they wouldn't take a charge. And people were going to jail for long sentences for possession of heroin back when I was a kid. Um, so in the 60s and even in the 70s, even in the 80s probably. Anyway, and then you'd see the officer down on on the ground picking little bits of drugs out of vomit like that's not an attractive job and it should simply end like the absurdity of it is you know you don't really think about how graphically difficult this is but instead of you know if you watch tv and and think what a police officer does they're always busting bad guys and you know it's a real putting them behind you know but the, in reality what is policing in Vancouver you have to put gloves on to touch people because you don't know what diseases they have like MRSA uh, you know it, it's extremely uh, degrading and and it police can regain um, a, a very dignified role and we can ask for policing we can all be proud of and that is a social movement we have not been able to form in Vancouver and all I've concluded is a lot of people are afraid of the police and I don't seem to be one of them but um, I'm nervous enough but not you know what I mean? I just, I figure you give it a whirl. Once I got gray hair and a bun, I feel a lot more, I'm a lot bolder, I think. I feel like saying to them, I'm older than your mother, right? I am, right? Come on, tell me. I'm older than your mother. So I can sort of, 
but I just think that we do need to provide that leadership as seniors and elders too. Uh, just sort of, you know, I think that's the unorganized un un group of people who, as long as they can see this, I think the hardest thing now when I talk to people who are my age is they don't have any idea that welfare has been dismantled, that you can't get healthcare when you're not on welfare, like some of these extremely difficult flaws and the uh, over-incarceration of people. So despite tens of thousands of take-home naloxone kits being distributed to hundreds of community agencies and the opening of uh, over 20, I, I don't know how many of these overdose prevention sites, they're not injection sites, they're, they let us go, they say, oh, there's no medical personnel on site, it's sort of like a needle exchange, but uh, you can do drugs there. Like, I was like, okay, whatever you want to call it, thanks for making us legal, because I've done it like five times, and, none, and it was never made legal before. So um, I think it's a breakthrough, and we're moving to the next level. Um, that the OD still continue to kill four people a day. And we, their latest data is the same. It's not coming down. So we have a huge task ahead of us. Um, this, uh, this was a group of people who were doc nurses and doctors. And um, that's unusual. They really have something to lose. They could lose their accreditation or their, you know, their doctors, you know. I, you don't, you're messing with, you know, like that's your whole life's stuff. They did it in um, Copenhagen. This is an... Uh, mobile place. People just come in, sit down, and use their drugs there. And of course, these became legal almost immediately. Oddly, in Copenhagen or in Denmark, they had already gotten legal prescribed heroin, but they still had public drug use going on and no place to inject publicly. So it was kind of like the other way around. Although our heroin prescribed prescription program is expanding. So and then I just ended with this. I think the final major risk for addiction is economic. So when you study addiction, you say, who becomes an addict and who becomes overly involved in this and is really hurt by addiction? It's people who um, make less than 20000 a year. They're 3.4 times higher um, to become addicts than people who make over $50,000. Um, to those who study the effects of inequality on health, and this is a very important thing that we're not emphasizing enough in our public health, inequality really makes people sick. And... Um, so that's her statement. Uh, Maya Salvitz is a, and this was uh, an editorial in the Scientific American. I thought it would impress you guys. <laughs> I heard your mission statement. Anyway, many people would prefer that they could solve this addiction problem by busting dealers and cracking down on doctors who were over-prescribing um, opiates, right? We all know that story. Um, the reality, however, is that as long as there is distress and despair, some people are going to seek chemical ways to feel better only when we can steer them towards healthier or at least less harmful ways of self-medication. Only when we reach children before they develop this type of desperation will we be able to reduce addiction. And as a woman raising a child with a very low income in living in the downtown east side there's been less and less opportunities for children almost everything that I want to put my child into for recreation is uh, has a fee and they'll say oh we'll reduce it by 30 percent I think I live on 950 a month including my rent uh, it doesn't matter if you reduce the fee we don't have anything and of course I dream it up and but I, I'd like to push back on that. I'd like people to say, we're taxpayers. We pay for all these community centers, and they're very, the, the fees don't even touch really the cost of running the things. But what we've done is created a cadre of children who have no access to recreation that many of us think they do have access to, and they don't. And these are the important things for kids is having a sense of purpose, a sense of place, inclusion, and activities they can do. And it's the simplest thing in the world. Uh, it's not even radical. And here I am pushing for it. So, and then this is this the last thing. How do we witness the anguish of people who use drugs? By giving a voice to people who use drugs. And um, the most marginalized ones. Let's talk to the ones who are really being hurt by it. You know, you, you might know someone who shoots 
injects heroin who's got a master's degree and it's, you know, but let's go after really making. So invite the rejected, give voice to the silence, include the excluded, and bring unity and peace to those who are divided. And um, in a world hungry for healing and forgiveness, reconciliation, and most of all, unconditional love, we are called to alleviate that hunger. And then this last quote, she was just in town. I never say her name out. Does everyone know who this woman is? She's so great. She wrote The God of Small Things. She's got another book out now. Arunde Roy? I don't know how to... Arundhati Roy. She's so wonderful. But this is... When people say to me, Anne, why did you spend 23 years doing this work? And I'm still doing it. It's this problem. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And it's very tough to... I find if I try to stop doing volunteer work and get out of this thing, and I'll just go, I don't know... I'll get Deirdre to teach me how to paint, and we'll go to the beach all the time, and I'll get a dog or something. I just, it's, I can't sleep anyway, so I might as well do the right thing. And then I've just put these references on. I don't know. I'm fine if people want to um, print copies or for whatever reasons they have any other um, questions. Thank you.